0: Welcome to episode 14 of SlantCast, the official podcast of Slant Books. My name is Gregory Wolfe, and I am Slant's publisher and editor. Tonight, we're returning to another format we inaugurated some months back, a conversation, you might say an extended close reading of a contemporary author. We're excited to do that because as we've conceived it, Slant's mission is more expansive than simply the publication of our own titles. We're fighting to defend the integrity of literature itself from the powerful ideologies and interests that want to reduce it to propaganda, didacticism, or merely a relic of the past. We're equally concerned about the pervasive influence of contemporary technologies and habits that have made it harder to master the art of close reading, deep comprehension, and careful discernment that enduring literature seeks to cultivate in us. Today, we'll be delving into the work of this year's Nobel laureate in literature, the Norwegian author Jon Fosse. I'm joined once again by one of Slant's own authors, Jonathan Geltner, who was my conversational partner on our Cormac McCarthy episode. Jonathan is back, not because of any special form of favoritism, though he is certainly one of my favorite people, but largely because he's the only other writer I know who has read a fair amount of Fosse's work. And what I have read of his criticism has been tremendously helpful to me personally. Just so I give you some introduction to his background, Jonathan was born in eastern Massachusetts but grew up mainly in Cincinnati, Ohio. He studied English classics and French at the University of Cincinnati, pursued graduate work in English at the University of Chicago, and earned an MFA in fiction from Warren Wilson College. He published a translation of Paul Claudel's Five Great Odes with Angelico Press in 2020 and the novel Absolute Music with Slant Books in 2022. Welcome back Jonathan.
1: Thank you Greg, good to be here.
0: Well so we're here to talk about this Norwegian author who we got sort of drawn into in the last couple of years and without any awareness that he was likely to be a Nobel laureate but that prize does focus attention and uh, I thought it would be a great idea to sort of ride on the wave of that attention to share with other people what we found in, in him what we found so compelling and uh, I must say I wasn't actually sure at first <laughs> when I began reading Bus's work I I found the style a little off-putting, to be honest. It, there was definitely a bit of a learning curve, a little, a little steep curve at the, at the outset as I read the first volumes of his long novel, Septology. And uh, I felt like the jury was out for a long time and it took a while for me to get sucked in. So there's no doubt that this is an author who definitely comes with a learning curve uh, and it's maybe, maybe not for everyone uh, but we, I think both of us probably agree that, you know, we we would want to persuade people to endure, to believe that after that initial sort of hump, <laughs> a big speed bump, maybe at the outset of getting into it, uh, that there's something really worth, There's some, they will be repaid for that effort, don't you think?
1: Yes, very much so. Um, maybe one thing to say about that. Is that um while uh Septology, the seven volume novel, uh, which mainly we'll be discussing, um is indeed pretty long um <clears throat> and can take a while to get into. Um, most of Fos's other fiction is really, really short. Um, really it's more uh, more like a novella, the kind of thing he usually writes um or has up to this point. Um including uh, his most recent title, A Shining, uh, which was just published in English a couple of days ago, um, also very short. So um, even though we'll, we'll mainly discuss septology, I expect um, if people are intrigued by Fosa in general and want to dive in, uh, there are more, shorter, more accessible, maybe uh, points of entry. Um, in fact, A Shining would be a good one. Um, you and I just read it. Um, and uh, the first FOSA that I ever read is called Alice at the Fire, and that's A-L-I-S-S for Alice. Um, it's a really short sort of novella length um, piece of fiction <clears throat> and um, also has a character named Asla, uh, main character with that name, uh, as does quite a bit of FOSA's fiction. Um, he's the main character in Septology. Um or a character with that name, I guess I should say. Um, any case, uh, Alice at the Fire is the first thing I read. Um, and short as it was, it did take me some effort to get into it also. Um, this would have been, I think I read it back in about 2016 or 2017. Um, but I, once I was in it, I, I was pretty captivated. Um, for the same reason, I think that I've been captivated by everything of Fosse's that I've read, um, namely that he's... Um, He's incredibly minimal, stark, sort of severe uh, in his um, highly disciplined choice of, of imagery and um, very simple language that he uses. Uh, and yet it's, um, it's engrossing. He's able to be completely engrossing with such a limited palette.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and I find that to be technically very impressive.
0: Um, I mean, if you think about it, we were... We were talking in our last podcast about Cormac McCarthy, who's probably, <laughs> you might say, the absolute polar right. opposite. Other of end of the spectrum, McCarthy yeah. McCarthy, with his sort of Faulknerian Baroque, you know, diction and all these erudite, recondite, you know, words from medieval chemistry and so on. You know, uh, <laughs> alchazest, alchazest. I remember words like that. You know, just stick in your in your mind from McCarthy. But you're right. Plus, uh, keeps it in a very narrow range, right? Like a fairly plain diction. Well, why don't we actually tell people what we know about his background? He was he was born in Western Norway, so I guess when when you think about that, you think of the fjords, you think of the water, you think of a pretty rural fishing, uh, and that seems to form the backbone of his identity. I I guess he. He also writes in the the sort of I don't know if you call it a dialect, but but an alternative written form of Norwegian called Nynorsk. Uh, You're the linguist uh, between us, so I I don't have you ever heard about that particular?
1: Uh, Yeah, Um, it's uh, so as you say, he's from Western Norway. and uh, that that area has its own dialect, um, as distinct from, uh, I guess, the areas more like around Oslo. Um, and uh, it's it's taken some time, I think, for um, the dialect of Western Norway um, to to become like a literary language, I guess, um, but. Uh, Writers like um, Fossa, um, and I think some others, maybe Tarje Vesas, uh, um, and other prominent authors from Western Norway, have have managed to boost this minority dialect into uh, making it kind of like uh, on a par, at least, with Bokmål, the or Nynorsk, the you know the the standard. Norwegian, I guess. Um, I haven't really looked at it much myself. I don't I'm I'm not familiar enough with Norwegian to to be able to um really appreciate the difference between the different dialects. But um yeah, he's he's it's definitely a Western Norway is kind of its own culture, I suppose, uh, in a literary sense, uh certainly. And it has to do with dialect. And that is the region of Norway that that is in all of his fiction. Um he doesn't live full-time there now so um it's from bergen um but uh he doesn't always he he resides part of the time in austria uh where his i think it's his third wife is from and um part of the time in oslo where he's been given a, a kind of a mansion Uh, as a reward for his literary work as as part of a prize um, that he won at some point relatively recently. Um, So he kind of goes back and forth between Austria and Oslo uh, and then I think he also does still spend a significant amount of time in western Norway. But that landscape absolutely is um, the foundation of his fiction and the um, things like the kinds of votes they make there traditionally, or the kinds of music that they play, like the hardanger fiddle, um, which is a double-stringed fiddle, <clears throat> appears in uh, *Septology*. Um, and uh, the and and Bergen itself, the city there, the main city of Western Norway, um, is uh, is a major presence in his fiction, um, certainly in *Septology*. Um, even though uh, the narrator, we'll call him the narrator, Asley, um, doesn't actually live in Bergen, but he's transiting back and forth to Bergen. Um, so yeah, that's like the landscape of his fiction, for sure, is Western Norway, um, even if he's yeah. not on there now.
0: Yeah, so um, I guess we should also note that fiction really is almost his second vocation as a writer because I mean as I understand it he was primarily a playwright for many many years in fact he was I've been told that he's the most produced playwright or one of the most produced playwrights on the planet primarily in Europe because well that makes sense we we really truly barely heard about him here in uh, across the Atlantic but uh, I think he kind of came to a personal transformational point uh, about a decade ago or so 2012 i think he singled out as a point where he i guess he felt burned out as a playwright uh you know i guess when you're successful in in theater you get a lot of commissions and so i think he was finding that he was he you know he could just keep keep it rolling in a way and i'm sure that was you know obviously something he enjoyed doing for a time but but he seemed to experience kind of burnout, and I presume there was probably some relationship damage along the way, and then and then uh, religion worked its way into the equation somehow. Again, the story is is only told in very broad bro- brushstrokes uh, where I've discovered it, but somehow perhaps uh, inexplicably, Roman Catholicism entered into his experience and. He was received into the church. I think the culminating year was two thousand and twelve but uh do you what do you know about the biography anything
1: um, some of it is is fictionalized in septology um, and um, yeah, there was a kind of he's had a somewhat tempestuous life um, uh, not to cast any judgment on it but um i, I he um was alcoholic and so i think like three things happened at once maybe four um he quit drinking he joined the roman catholic church he quit writing plays and he got married so like two positive and two negative things (laughs) I, i think all happened within a relatively short span of time for him roughly a decade ago um uh he married yeah as i said i believe it's his third wife Um, and I believe he has altogether six children. I'm not totally positive on that. Um, uh, and yeah, and he joined the Roman Catholic church. He is from a Quaker background and, um, uh, interestingly enough, unusually enough for a a Scandinavian, I suppose. Um, and, uh has always been interested in their spirituality and that also comes through um at least from what i know about quakerism which is not a lot um in septology for sure uh so we can get to this soon but um there's quite a lot of spirituality and mysticism and theology um woven into that novel Um, and much of it is definitely a a very ancient christian um tradition Eckhart and and the people before Eckhart going all the way back to Pseudo Dionysus and Eastern Cath or Eastern Christian stuff. Um, But there's a kind of Quaker. um, Passivity or receptivity. uh, In evidence there, uh, which is totally related to Eckhartian mysticism, I suppose, or inwardness. so that's yeah, that's another little strand in his biography. So it, it sort of prepared him, I guess, uh at least as he tells it, to um to be attracted to Catholicism. Um I would just add that um I believe so his wife is Austrian, his present wife is Austrian and and I believe Catholic, like a practicing Catholic. Um the character in um Septology, who's Asley's wife, um, Alice, uh, uh, she is religious, she's deceased throughout she she died a long time before the story starts. Um, she died young without children from some kind of disease, it seems. Um, it's, it's a sad backstory. Um, that character it, though it was an icon painter. Um, and, and so that the narrator talks a bit more than a bit about icons and he is himself a painter, uh, they're not of icons, I guess I should say writer of icons is the correct term. Um, anyhow, his deceased wife made icons, holy icons. And, um, I believe at some point I did read in an interview or something with Fosa that he was very drawn to the Eastern, uh, Christian tradition, um, whether that would be you know eastern Byzantine Catholicism or Eastern orthodoxy, um, that uh, kind of spirituality is is sort of the um <clears throat> the style uh within the broader Catholic Christian tradition that um seems to have most attracted him,
0: yeah well, let's delve into the fiction itself at this point um the the, the core of our conversation will probably be about septology, but tell me about Alice at the Fire. Is that what it was called?
1: Uh, yeah, that book is from, I think, um, 2004 in Norwegian and 2010 maybe in the English translation. Um, yeah, so so like a lot of postage fiction, you could just summarize the plot um, and it would sound really simple and straightforward, except that um, actually, it's incredibly complicated from another point of view, because you're getting the story refracted through um, a character's like hallucinatory memory, um, like overwhelming hallucinatory memory. Uh, Alice at the Fire is takes place, technically, I guess you could say, entirely within the mind of a woman who is um, named Xenia, uh, who's sitting on a, or lying on a bench in her home, um, and she's remembering, the, and this is in 2002, and she's remembering back to 1979 when her young husband um, went out into the stormy, cold fjord, um, as was his habit, and never came back. And um, and that's pretty much it. <laughs> and yet it goes on for like 80 or 90 pages. Um, it's a whole lot of... Um, um, of senior th- seeing her husband and then actually you get the husband's thoughts and what the husband is seeing um so it's as if uh her memory transports us into the consciousness of um of her husband asli uh, or asla i, I don't I, my norwegian pronunciation is terrible so uh, well
0: i listen to it in audiobooks and, and i have this is the only <laughs> This is the only authority i possess uh because it, intellectually I, I i'm ignorant but uh the narrator on the audiobook pronounced it osla
1: osla okay right because there's a little uh little dot over the a yeah osla, so. of
0: yeah, osla. <laughs> for what it's worth
1: <laughs> osla i'm gonna i'm gonna no, i'm gonna olis
0: olis osla, osla yeah. all of that but yeah so all these a's are really... our, our listeners will will grant us some forgiveness i'm sure uh, yeah, we should be charging for
1: Norwegian lessons. This is <laughs> right. service. Um, yeah, so anyway, okay, Osla. <laughs> so what what you get is transported from um, uh memory into Osla's, uh, or sorry, no, this is Senia. I'm back in Alice at the fire. The wife has a different name. Um, and... Uh, the whole thing has a narrator, an I, uh, that actually comes in and at the beginning and the very end. It says, "I." it's begins, "I see Signia," or however you say her name, standing at the window, and um, uh, it's not really clear who that narrator is. But anyway, um, the point being, um, from that probably somewhat confusing exposition, that uh, the kind of fiction uh, Fosa really likes to write is. Uh, stream of consciousness the representation of consciousness directly Um, in a pretty technical sense you could say he doesn't often have or doesn't always have narrators like um, Septology for instance Uh, technically it doesn't have a narrator Um, we're actually just getting the consciousness of this guy Osla the, the very first words of the whole thing are and I see myself standing and looking at the picture with the two lines that cross in the middle, one purple line, one brown line. It's a painting wider than it is high. And I see that I've painted this line slowly and so on. Um, I see myself. So uh, it's its a, um, <clears throat> you have a lot of instances of this in his fiction, characters who like have a vision of themselves, Um, it could be in the past. They can, they sort of like watch their life um, like it's a movie or something uh, from the past uh, or they can even do that sympathetically with another character. They can like see visions of this other characters um, or imaginations of them. Um, But it's very much the representation of of consciousness and uh, that is so not the reporting about consciousness, not saying so-and-so someone else thought um, this happened and then he felt that way. Yeah. it's just the character actually thinking it to themselves, uh, and that's not narration. That's not technically storytelling. Um, it's it's actually just a representation of the the consciousness of the character, a stream of consciousness, and that that is the reason why probably more than any other, his his fiction can be hard to to deal with, uh, hard to get into. It's a style of writing that um, is maybe less common in uh, American or anglophone fiction um at least nowadays right than it is in some European literatures and it just takes a little bit of time to get used to it because like I say it it kind of technically isn't storytelling and there's maybe at least this is my theory uh, there's a kind of part of your your mind that knows that and and so you're like reading this thing and it's a story of sorts but you're not really being told a story and so it can be a little off-putting yeah but there's it's a definitely certain... preferred style that that's yeah. definitely what Fosa like tends to gravitate towards
0: right i mean it starts mid sentence and it ends mid sentence and uh there are not a lot of paragraph indentations
1: <laughs> none there's no there's no in septology there's none um you know uh um except for dialogue so you you will get um uh, when when he's talking to other characters um which he doesn't do a whole lot of, but when it happens, you'll get some indentation for that. But yeah, a whole lot of septology looks like this. It's just a block of text. Um, there aren't sentences that end. Um, that's not, it's not quite that extreme in, in everything he writes there and, and other things like in Alice at the fire or, um, <clears throat> the new book, uh, a shining or another of his fiction, there is actually punctuation. So, um, like i said earlier there are like maybe easier points of entry into his into his work um that will just as thoroughly transport you into a rainy dark cold western norwegian landscape or cityscape um but uh yeah septology is is intense that way you're getting the the consciousness of primarily one man named osla and second another man named osla but we we, (laughs) maybe we can leave that out uh, it gets complicated
0: fast <clears throat> well i don't know if we should leave it out certainly there's not a lot that you would say would be spoiler <clears throat> material in any work by fossa but uh no i think i think the fact that there is um there's a lack of of, of a narrator um in this stream of consciousness but th- not only that then there's the lack of you might say stability of of Character There's a unnerving quality to the story, um, to the world that's uh, unveiled, which includes, as you're I think alluding to another Osla um, and I've had I've seen somebody refer to these as uh, sober Osla and drunk Osla. Which, of course, okay, there you go. (laughs) Yeah. So there's kind of a doppelganger um, aspect to the story, right? That there's, and not only that, but there are other characters, the kind of humble farmer, local farmer fisherman. His name is O Slick. (laughs) And then the wife is O Liss. Yeah. So all these names are, are very similar to one another. So you might say there's kind of a, characters bleeding into each other or at least making you feel both similarity and dissimilarity I think he, he's playing a lot with with this sort of compare and contrast um, and the doppelganger of course is at the heart of it, the two different ways that Osla's story could have unfolded and we get both in a sense
1: Yeah, sober Osla is A believer, um, or, I mean, a troubled one often, but a religious man nonetheless. Drunk Osla is not. Um, Sober Osla, it does turn out, has had fidelity issues in the past, but he he was committed to the one wife and um, her death much earlier when she was young seems to have been a scarring, the, the scarring event in his life. Uh, whereas drunk Osla, um, from the beginning of his story, is moving around between women and never faithful and, and has all kinds of problems um, with that. Um, doesn't doesn't seem to have like a love of his life. Um, so they have all the, yeah, they're, they're sort of opposites in various ways. Uh, Fossa himself has called it a classic doppelganger novel. Um, it seems fair enough to me. Although he's also said, interestingly, that he started out with just one Osla. And then there were two. Um, it's not too hard to see how that division occurred. Um, but like you say, there's other characters as well, and their names are also similar that they start to almost seem like they're um, emanations of a single personality or something. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, are... I think for example, Oslik is this uh, non-intellectual. You know, um, he's sort of salt of the earth. Maybe he's the Fossa that you know is the kind of Western rural Western Norwegian splashing around in the fjord, you know, in his wooden boat kind of guy, like as opposed to the actual Jon Fossa who reads Heidegger and Derrida, right? (laughs) Because I mean that that is that is an element of his his overall uh, intellectual and literary gifts include pretty serious theological and philosophical investigations i think it's only fair to say
1: yeah that's a good point it's it can be easy to lose or just never glean any sight of that um in his fiction but yeah he he learned pretty young french and german fluently enough to to read the in those languages um and he absorbed a lot of the continental European thought, um, of the late 20th century and, uh, or earlier. And, um, Hilderlin also, I think he's, he's read heavily and, um, yeah, he's a learned guy. He, he, he can be quite learned and intellectual. Um, but that doesn't, yeah, it's not very obvious in the fiction. Uh, the, the one, um, <clears throat> the one figure of that nature uh that comes up in Septology. And by comes up, I mean Fosa will just launch into untranslated passages in medieval German. Um, is is Meister Eckhart. Um you, you will because um Eckhart is is like the spiritual guide for Osla, as I guess maybe he was for Olus too, I don't remember. Um and uh that that spirituality. Theology that comes from pseudo Dionysus and John Scotus Origina and and then into Eckhart, and then after Eckhart flows into uh, all kinds of places, um, is is like, as I was saying, kind of the the spiritual intellectual uh, tradition that seems to appeal to folks, at least these days. Um,
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I think he cited it as fundamental to his his own spirituality, his own faith. Like, without Eckhart, Mm -hmm. I don't know that I could have seen my way into this. So what do we know about him? Again, I'm not going to claim anything more than sort of just barely Wikipedia knowledge. I mean, I know that Eckhart has sort of been a poster child for everyone wanting to, you know, claim him as the heretical or... You know, sort of marginal figure who's can't be uh, tied to orthodoxy, and he's been claimed, you know, by various new age and, and and interreligious sorts, which I think is 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 obviously a good thing. But there's a, a tendency, I think, to make him a bit of a, you know, a stalking horse for for whatever your your particular belief system is. But there's definitely a kind of fundamental. Mystical core, right? There's a, there's this, uh, this interplay. I was talking earlier about similarity and dissimilarity, which is kind of one of the central themes I think of mystical thought, right? That, um, that mysticism involves a journey, sometimes from the world of similitude, things that, uh, the, the cataphatic, as as the theologian would say, the things of this world, the palpable, symbolic, earthly things to the kind of darkness to the the void the the evacuation the negative way the apophatic way and certainly Eckhart seems to me from my very amateurish knowledge to to be very much in the thick of that kind of tradition does that correspond to your your background on this
1: yeah for sure um if anyone wants to get into Eckhart because of reading FOSA, the thing I would recommend is this book, The Complete Mystical uh, Works of Eckhart. And it's edited um, by a man, Morris O'Connor Walsh, W-A-L-S-H-E, um, who was a great German uh, linguist or, or a, a, a Germanist, uh, a German philologist. That's what I'm trying to say. He was also a Buddhist, <clears throat> kind of interestingly. Um, Eckhart's theology or mysticism is, um, yeah, is potentially very interestingly compatible with um, non-dual thinking. Um, but yeah, the 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 sort of vein of mysticism in Western terms that he fits into and is is sort of like maybe the most prominent figure of it is um, is uh is negative theology the via negativa as opposed to the via affirmativa um so the, the way of dissimilitude um, rather than similitude um and it's <clears throat> a theology that um is about a kind of learned ignorance as as Cusanus would later call it um and it's a Full of a kind of luminous darkness, um, which is uh, an image or a kind of image um, that is all over Phos' writing and including from way before Septology. um, So I don't know how early he was reading Eckhart or if this is just a kind of natural place for the mind to go. If it's trying to wrap itself around non-dual conceptions of the absolute, I don't know, but um, it's... uh, it's a powerful image in, in Fosse's writing, and it's definitely in, in Eckhart as well. Um Eckhart's also very inward. He, he's very introspective. Um he had a predecessor actually in the figure of Mechthild of Magdeburg, a, a woman, um a, another a German, um, who who wrote about the flowing light of the Godhead. Um with this is an Eckhartian kind of term or becomes that goatite. Um, and it's about this inward experience of the divine that um would become hugely influential in the mysticism of of the Rhineland mystics after Mechtild and Eckhart. Um and then other other versions of it crop up elsewhere in the Christian tradition. Like I think the Theresian Carmelite spirituality um, of much later on um, is is quite similar in a lot of ways. It has its own kind of passionate inwardness uh, mixed with negation and darkness, Dark Night of the Soul, famously uh, John of the Cross. Um, I don't think there's a direct connection there. Anyway, the point is, it's, it's this is like mainstream Christian mysticism. Um, it's not uh, just because Meister Eckhart was, yeah, he got into trouble with the church of his time. Um, it really is pretty orthodox or historically central anyway. Um, and it furnishes FOSA with some pretty powerful imagery.
0: Right. And I think the way it gets refracted in the story to some extent is through Osla's vocation as a painter, right? So that you get the art, you get sort of the art to parallel the, the faith. Uh, they, they become uh, analogs of one another. That is, Osla is a painter who uh, has started, uh, like a lot of painters naturalistically, but evolved into an abstract artist in various ways. And the central recurring item uh, of, uh, uh, of the story that he begins and ends the book with is this one painting, uh, which is as you quickly described for the reader is like a like an X. <laughs> um, and it's what his friend Oslick calls the, his St. Andrew cross. Right. Uh, for those familiar with, for example, the the flag of Scotland, um, the white the white cross on the blue background. So it's sort of kind of a horizontal cross rather than a vertical cross. Yeah. X marks um, the spot.
1: Right. Yeah. It's it's more like the letter X. Uh, still a means of execution uh, in antiquity, just a different style. Um, yeah. How about I read a brief passage here exactly about the painting you're talking about and with the same imagery from Eckhart. Um, please do um in in the first volume so septology has seven parts they're divided into three volumes this is the first part in the first volume um this is early on in the whole thing uh he's hanging around with his neighbor oslik and they're talking about what are we going to do at christmas and um because they have like a tradition and and uh their, their interactions are actually kind of some subtle humor uh, just to say that as an aside there's some nice kind of humor there's a little you know like different classes interacting here you got the successful painter um talking to his farmer neighbor um and it's just it can be kind of cool sometimes to see that he does it so well but anyway so he's going back and forth with Oslak, and it leads to um osla saying thinking to himself i guess you know I hate Christmas. I can't stand it. Um, I think I forget if you might remember better than I, it could transpire that his wife died on Christmas or something like that, or an advent. I forget. Um, he's he's not actually a huge fan of this time of year uh, when the story is set, which is right, right before Christmas. Um, <clears throat> and he gets, and he goes into this whole thing. He's like, one of the only things that makes Christmas worthwhile is, the story of a man and a woman having a child. And then he gets into this like nice little rendition of the Christmas story. It's kind of beautiful. Um, but that thinking about that is sort of like what helps him get through Christmas Eve, which he thinks is the very worst. And then he starts thinking after that story, um, and here I'll start reading about it. I think about, um, hold on, let me go back just a little bit far. Uh, he's going through the Christmas story in his head and that also involves a light. He has this amazing imagination of the light that the shepherd or the magi see from the star of Bethlehem and how it's shining in the darkness. Um, and of course, that's a biblical image—you know, the light that shines in the darkness. But this mixture of the luminous and the dark is the the thing we're looking out for here. So he's—that's already in the Christmas story. He's re- rehearsing to him to himself. Um, He's thinking, and the light from the star is shining straight into the barn, they say, and now, as the Magi say, and now they want to give, to go give their gifts to the newborn child, they say, and I think that it's this light, yes, this exact light, yes, that this light is what I think about to get through Christmas Eve day, and to stop thinking about all the other things that it's so awful to think about, I think, and also I paint on Christmas Eve day the same as every other day. And there has to be a light in everything I paint. An invisible light, I think. And maybe the light I try to paint has something to do with the light coming from the child in the barn and from the star. I think, but no, it's not like that. And what's strange is that the easiest way to get pictures to shine is if they're dark. Yes, black. The darker and blacker the colors are, the more they shine. And the best way I can tell if a picture is shining and how strong or weak the light is in it And where is to turn out all the other lights. When it's dark as blackest night, of course, it's easiest to tell when it's as dark as possible outside, like now during Advent season. But in summer, too, I try to cover the windows and make it as dark as possible before looking at where and how much a picture is shining. Yes, to tell the truth, I always wait until after I've seen a picture in pitch blackness to be sure I'm done with it, because the eyes get used to the dark in a way, and I can see the pictures. As light and darkness and see if there's a light shining from the picture and where and how much and it's always always the darkest part of the picture that shines the most. And I think that that might be because it's in the hopelessness and despair in the darkness that God is closest to us, but how it happens how the light I get clearly into the picture gets there that I don't know. And he goes on. I mean, it no, there's no ending. Like I say, yeah. it's just <laughs> it keeps going. But um, that's early in the book, and there are many other passages like that. They go on a greater length. They spiral off into all kinds of um, tangents: uh, the light and the darkness, um, and how they can coexist, and generate each other, um, and how he's trying to get them in his painting. Um,
0: yeah, the whole idea of sort of how do you reveal. The invisible in the visible like that's the classic you know question what what is it that will take this made artifact this this thing of you know of oil and tempera or canvas or what have you how can it become a vessel a sort of sacrament for something beyond itself
1: yeah and um Another way that that happens that's so important to this book and to other of his fiction um, is through what I described before as the hallucinatory memory. Um, so like in septology, a thing that keeps happening is that he's driving to Bergen to get rid of his last paintings and he always has a, a Christmas show in Bergen and he goes by this like park um and he sees there a younger version of himself with his wife when she was alive and um this is the kind of thing that just constantly happens in, in Fosse's fiction so it's like the the landscape that he's going through and is very like viscerally conscious of um also like discloses the past to him it's like when he looks at a spot um one of his narrators I mean uh when one of Phos' narrators looks at a spot whether it's like the window in her house or a playground park that um uh near the house or whatever it he sees the place but or she sees it but then also sees the past of it so one of the ways that the world seems to be Sacramental, or to disclose something in excess of its apparent self, for Fosa is it, it it contains the past. The past is not gone in Fosa's books; it's always still there, and it and it can be extremely intrusive. It it takes over the consciousness, at least um, in Septology, or all of them really. the The narrator um, can be trying to focus on something, and will just get lost uh in in sort of hallucinating the past um and try to rest themselves from that and not always be successful um and uh and it can go on for incredibly great lengths of time
0: right so the simultaneity of past and present the kind of they merge yeah. they merge or can emerge from one another you know uh, at any given moment
1: yeah it's really quite haunting I don't, I don't know if that has been your experience of, of this fiction. But um, for me, I find it, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not exactly sure why I find it that way. But I, it, there's something almost eerie about it. Um, and yet, at the same time, it can also be um, comforting in some way, because this is dark stuff. And these are, these are pretty kind of sad, old, worn down narrators a lot of the time. Um, But they're sort of like permanently deeply bereaved. But, um, and yet there's, it ends up being actually kind of comforting too, uh, because the past is still with them. So, I mean, in septology, we can, I can say even further than that, not just the landscape, but sometimes they just have um, memories when they're not doing anything particularly related to that memory. And then, and even Osla's wife actually talks to him um or he he kind of thinks she does uh she's there she's like there with him she she can feel um or he can feel her presence at certain times even though she's been dead for a long time um has kind of to do with like his rosary um which she gave she gave him a bunch of rosaries and um has to do with that
0: um he does a lot of praying (laughs) because of this um yeah, I mean, the merging of past and present, you know, again, it's sort of time and eternity, the visible and the invisible, the past and the present, That those polarities, you think of the X of the painting, <laughs> being yeah. the X of the painting, the cross, is sort of these <clears throat> these polarities meet at the still point of the turning world, you know, one wants to say at times, because that stillness, that silence is is where it seems that there's a possibility of like reconciliation or an awareness of, of a wholeness. Um, and that's where I think, you know, the, I mean, the old phrase comes to mind, the subspecie eternitatis, right? Like to see things under the aspect of eternity, the yeah. timeless dimension. And so I think that's where the the prayer which really becomes the central recurring motif of the septology, right? Where Osla, as you say, he's fumbling. You know, he's still a recent convert. He's not an authority on anything. He's not an intellectual in that sense, though he certainly dabbled in mystical thought. But he has this drive to try to find this peace, this silence, this void you might say i mean again to use mystical language like and and the repetitive you know classic prayers our father hail mary the jesus prayer right yeah there's the son of god have mercy upon me a sinner the repetition which of course goes along with the repetition of it kind of blends with the repetition of this consciousness going on and on and on because you know the way that it's rendered in the story and of course this is easily parodied like any great writer you can parody. like McCarthy we could easily parody right with all these uh the use of I think and yes right yeah (laughs) and so the liturgical what I've called a liturgical aspect to the to the writing, that's part of the process, right? Part of the way the character is processing and seeking that that kind of shining darkness. <laughs> it all comes together in a way in prayer.
1: I might, yeah. I mean, I, I I would I would ask what you make of the prayer. So, uh, so the the thing about Septology is, um, I will just exp- structurally explain it really briefly. Um, there are seven parts each part ends with a prayer. And I just went back through and checked it all. Um, the first and the last part end with an Ave Maria. And um, <clears throat> he doesn't quite get to finish it at the end. Uh, and all the inter, the other five books in the middle, hmm, uh, um, all end with the Jesus prayer. This is an Eastern prayer, I think in origin um, in its longest form. It's Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, and sometimes it's just the name Jesus. It can get that short, I think, for the Hezekast the uh, practices. But anyway, the, the Jesus prayer is what concludes all the other five books of Septology in between the two Aves that bookend it. Um, but there's also paternosters in there. Um, and calling them by their Latin names is maybe appropriate because he actually thinks them in Latin. Some of the time, um, the narrator Osla has has like taught himself enough Latin to to understand um you know various things pertaining to Catholicism. So, um, it's how they all conclude, and and that's just amazing. I mean, to me, that's astonishing more than I, I can't imagine. Like, how does a writer in the twenty first century pull off this much prayer in a novel? It, it's just it's the kind of thing that you would normally assume, like, oh, well, there's no way that'll work. It'll just be alienating and weird for so many readers, and it, and it, like why even put it in there? You know, like you could just as easily write, and then I prayed an Ave, and then whatever happened next. But no, you actually get the Ave, or whatever it is, um, as part of his consciousness. Right. Uh, another aspect of it being consciousness and not narration, you know. So maybe that's kind of technically why he can't skip it. But um, I don't know. I mean, I, I like that. Uh, that idea of of what the prayer is doing in in this novel i would say though that um osla resorts to it uh in times of distress and um he's very much like relying on it to calm himself and try and get control of his his memories yeah Um, he uh he he gets freaked out by stuff and, and, and then he'll, he'll right. try to bring himself into calm or, or to sleep.
0: Right. Yeah. And that's, the, that's the very aspect that, um, this desire for peace, uh, this hunger for a kind of rest, uh, this still point, um, that the New Yorker interviewer, uh, focused on, um, again, I'm probably saying her name wrong, but Merv Emery, <laughs> um, and she writes in, um, in that piece. Uh, Septology is the only novel I have read that has made me believe in the reality of the divine. Hmm. As as the 14th century theologian Meister Eckhart, whom Fossa has has read intently, describes it, quote, and this is from Eckhart, it is in the darkness that one finds the light. So when we are in sorrow, then this light is nearest of all to us. And I think maybe with that imagery of light, and since we're getting close to the end here, why don't we shift over to this new book that's literally just been published a couple days ago, as you said. It's called The Shining. It's very short. I mean, calling it even a novella in a way is perhaps generous. You can certainly read it as a sitting. And it, it bears certain similarities with Septology. Uh, but there's still some differences there so why don't we why don't we talk about that in the remaining time we have what were your thoughts
1: um i think everything Fosa writes like some guy thinks a bunch of stuff and goes off into like a, a, a wild place and dies <laughs> like that's that's the plot summary of everything um no it's not everything but um it's Alice at the fire, and it's Septology, and it's uh, and it's A Shining. Um, maybe not a wild place, but uh, A Shining is crazy. It's weird. It it has a lot of resemblances to other stuff he's written. At the same time, it's got some unique stuff. Um, the narrator is not so. It's stream of consciousness, just like <clears throat> Septology. However, uh, while there are no paragraph breaks in the, it comes to sixty three pages, and they're not long pages. So yeah, right, it's very short. It's barely even a novella. Um, there is punctuation. Um, there are actual sentences. Uh some of them are run-on sentences, but I mean there are sentences. So um uh, there's no the, the narrator is not named. We we never find out what is the name of this man, um, which is like a more extreme form of, of everything else in FOSA, it's so stark and elemental. It's like the man, the woman, the bread, the fishing, you know, the, the beer, the, it's like, whatever it is, it's like, there's just simple, basic things and persons in FOSA. There's no like geopolitical world in, in this fiction. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I, all right, I'll ask you this. It about a shining is it possible in Western literature to have a man go into a dark wood and not think of Dante?
0: <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's classic, uh, and yet for all the, the resonance of that uh, analogy, I don't think that the text really sort of draws much on Dante after that. No. Um, it although it does set it up, I mean, you have a character here you know you have this stream of consciousness i mean i i can't help but feel like there's a kind of samuel beckett aspect um to this and other um narrations uh, of fossa so, i mean and i'm not the first to to make that comparison i mean you you have these you know these stark voices against a void in a way um yeah. and you get a character who sort of uh, goes out to meet his destiny in a way, and yeah, you're right. That is kind of a recurring theme, but it is certainly a recurring human <laughs> experience. Um, the way we experience our lives is is as a destiny that ends in death, right? Um, and so, uh, yeah, when I read *A Shining*, I, you know, it's it's stripped out of even the the usual narrative of named characters and histories. And it really becomes a kind of dream, dreamlike, uh, hallucinatory. I think you've, you've used the, the word and that's very much the way that the shining works is this guy's driven to a random drive. You know, he's bored, bored out of his mind, you might say, and he just drives and decides to kind of turn left or right, uh, depending on what he's done the last, you know, he he turn left, then he'll turn right, until yeah. he gets to this <laughs> end of a forest road, and of course, that also evokes you know that that being at the end of your rope and resorting to a kind of almost chance thing. For me, that's reminiscent of Augustine in the Confessions. You know, opening a random page of scripture. Right? He's he's kind of at his stressed out end of his rope, and he doesn't know what to do and you kind of you're trying to force the world to speak back to you like that's very much i think the mode of a shining is like a human cry in the dark you know for an answer and in the story you sort of in this a shining you get some answers but then you get also some silence yeah so it's sort of like a, it's sort of like a beckett that's more hopeful or a beckett that's more the haunted hauntedness of it is not that maybe Godot will never come, but maybe Godot has come because you have this shining light that he experiences and you have voices that speak back, you know, that answer back.
1: Yeah, I, I honestly, I mean, so something else like, I, I would like to know what people make of this in general, um, but... One one thing I have a question about reading this. Is it possible to write allegorically um, at this time? Because uh, obviously Dante, very allegorical, and when he wanders into the dark wood in the middle of life's way, um, and has to descend into hell. I mean, like we have a very clear moral universe that's getting navigated here in a shining it's like there are so many moments in it where i'm like on the cusp of allegory like this just seems like surely surely this is this is almost going to become allegorical in what seems like a completely ancient and not no longer possible mode um you got this guy yeah he drives in randomly into the woods out of sheer boredom and just starts walking down the path because his car gets stuck and it's cold and snowy and he's a little worried about that and he for some reason, instead of walking back down the way he came um, because he thinks it's too far, he'll go into the woods because there's a kind of a path there um, and try and see where it leads and, and ask whoever he finds at the end of that path to, to help him with his car. So it's a very worldly circumstance at first, but things get weird really fast. He loses, he gets off the path and lost in the woods. Um, and he's already kind of lost, but he's now he's lost in the woods. He can't even find the path. And he thinks he's going to freeze. It's snowing, but then the snow clears. So we've got the moon and the stars significantly in this thing, which again is like Dante. He's always talking about where the heavenly bodies are. It's um, important to his allegory. And, And yeah, and then he encounters a shining being who he thinks is a woman, but then maybe it's not got a gender. And he encounters his mother and father, but sort of dimly, he knows them more by their voices than by their appearance. And then he encounters a faceless man in a black suit and tie. And then eventually, he goes with his mother and father, who can't help him. They're they're like trying to help him get out of the woods. And you have no idea. You don't know anything about this guy. Like, did his parents die long ago? I mean, like, does he? He doesn't even reflect on that. Um, He's an a, a only man. You don't know if he's got like a wife. and Kids somewhere, you have no idea anything about this guy. You don't know if his parents are still living. He knows it's been a long time since he's seen them. That's that's all he knows. He can't even think to himself like, when was the last time I saw my parents? He doesn't know. And, um, and eventually they all depart in this like luminous cloud. And there's no more sun and stars, no more moon and stars, no more snowy woods. It's just this... <laughs> luminosity that they go into and it's like wow this is i don't i just don't even know what to call it i mean it, it there's, there's moments where it feels like there's almost a trinity there um there certainly is in the form of him and his two parents um but there's another there's also him and the the bright figure and the dark the man in the dark suit um there, there's various tripartite organizations in it that seem highly suggestive or symbolic in some way but it's like you can't quite latch onto it and figure out what 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 might really be going on symbolically and and then it has this totally mysterious ending i mean i described it as death but i don't know make of it what i you know right it's a really intriguing thing and i don't know what people would make of it but um, well i mean
0: isn't that the fact of the indeterminacy i suppose some people might see it as a blemish too vague to um open-ended but that mitigates the, I mean, the danger of allegory always is a kind of simple one-to-one correspondence, right? Like, this equals that. And that's why, you know, people talk about Tolkien, you know, the Tolkien's approach was to create a seamless world, right? Whereas C.S. Lewis was tempted to more allegorize and and make characters, you know, kind of sort of like Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, where you get... Uh, that sort of direct, uh, this is pride. This very large giant is pride. <laughs> right. I mean, Dante works. Means I argolio, think, he, which yeah, means pride. <laughs> right, whatever. exactly. I mean, Dante tends to work, I think, because, I mean, allegory, the thicker it gets, the better, right? The, the thinner, the more obvious. The, Dante surrounds his story with all this swirling metaphorical register of stars and moons yeah. and the whole you know imagery of light and and it gets thickened up so that the allegorical soup is so rich and so multifarious that it doesn't feel like you know you're just spotting your sp- oh there goes that abstraction walking around. Um and I think you know this story does flirt with allegory in that way. Actually, it almost reminded me of George MacDonald, something like George MacDonald's little fairy story of Um, the golden key. Yeah. Where you get a kind of feeling of a life and destiny and and the ultimate uh, spiritual search kind of going on, but, but it resists a simple allegory. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's a book that I, I don't know. It's For me, it, it obviously is a very short um, uh, work that's hard to put next to something as massive as Septology. But it might at least intrigue. Maybe it'd be sort of the um, what do they call it, the amuse bouche that uh, yeah. you have before a meal to get your palate going for maybe tackling one of the, the longer books. But yeah, I mean, it's still very fresh in my mind, so I'm not going to I'm not going to um, render judgment on *A Shining*, except to say that it may be a, a an, an intriguing entryway uh, for for people new to Fossa.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's an aperitif, especially if you drink like straight whiskey for your aperitif. It's it's not there's not a lot going on in it. It's um well, I mean, that's not being fair, but like if you wanted to acclimate yourself to his um, penchant for images of light and dark mixing um and for extremely simple primordial elemental settings uh, and figures like a man a mother a father no names things like that um then it would be it would be a good way to do that Uh, and the language is easier much easier to read than like alice at the fire um which uh still isn't that bad but it can be a little more, I don't know, a little denser, more repetitive or something. Um, I quoted a bunch of it in my close reading post last, if anyone wants to look at Alice at the Fire, but um, A Shining is even more accessible than that. Um, So yeah, I think it would actually be a nice way in, Um, but if if someone's craving a little more of like the human tangible world, along with plenty of crazy luminous darkness and, and such mysticism, um septology is is something to get into and it um because it's got so many of those details there's concrete um images that you can easily wrap your mind around which is normally the kind of thing i tell writing students like you gotta give your reader that stuff they have to be able to imagine things to to enter into this world um and you'd be amazed how many people like this is not obvious um septology is full of that it's a very visceral book i mean there, there were moments in septology where he's like describing or thinking to himself how he's like cooking breakfast uh or even like feeding his dog his little dog he's taking care of he's taking care of drunk Asley's dog i dog and uh and i'll be like re- i remember reading it and suddenly getting hungry and be like oh man i gotta go cook some sausage and onions like right now this is just too real um so there's there's a lot more of that, yeah, in psychology yeah. and other things he wrote too. Right.
0: Yeah. More to more to more to hold on to. Um yeah, I, I, I was always, you know, a little puzzled by the way he feeds his dog because he's always giving the dog bread. bread. <laughs> and I'm thinking <laughs> to myself awesome that is not a good bread. diet for a dog. <clears throat> well, Jonathan, it's great it's been great talking. I mean, I I think the overall verdict is that we're we approve of the, the Swedish Academy's yes, <laughs> judgment.
1: Yes, they have our sanction. And we we
0: really want people to try, you know, to give Fossa a try. That, that it's this is a substantial writer. It may not be your cup of tea. Um but it's worth at least an effort. And if you need to beat a retreat, we understand, but some of you will be able to to cross over that threshold and, and keep going. Yeah.
1: And, and I'm sure he's going to continue to produce some interesting stuff. Like we were saying early on, he did have a pretty big change not all that long ago. Um, and it has produced already uh, quite a lot of writing that's a little different, maybe more profound than some of his earlier stuff. Um, and uh, I think he even has a, a book of essays available in English. I haven't
0: read it. Um,
1: but there's there's stuff out there and um, all of it worth
0: picking up. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, our next live book launch podcast will be taking in just a few days from now. And uh, I don't even know if that will come out first, but we're looking forward to it. It'll be celebrating the release of Jeannie Murray Walker's Leaping from the Burning Train, A Poet's Journey of Faith. Let me just quote from the cover copy for that book. This is a book about a girl who left home without quite meaning to. One evening doing her algebra homework, the 16-year-old abruptly realizes the tight-knit fundamentalist community she has been raised in may not have all the answers it claims to have. Then what to do with her familiar, immersive life? Sunday school, church, prayer meetings, vacation Bible school, mother-daughter banquets, midnight vigils, revivals, and car washes. In college, she discovers the language of poetry. It offers a path through metaphor and imagery that transcends the literalism and insularity of her childhood. Ahead of her lies a career as poet, playwright, essayist, and teacher. Leaping from the burning train tells this story in loving and exuberant detail without the self-righteousness that sometimes accompanies contemporary memoirs by those who have left conservative Christianity. Throughout her journey, including an early acquaintance with death and grief, the figurative language of poetry remains Jeannie Murray Walker's constant companion, and that language over time sustains her in a deepened, more authentic form of the faith she never abandoned. In addition to Jeannie's book, we also hope you'll check out our other recent releases, Amit Majmudar's Twin A, a memoir, and two poetry collections, Olga Sitokova's Old Songs, and the late Robert Pax's Searching for Home. You can learn more about these titles and find a variety of options for ordering them by going to their respective webpages at slantbooks.org. Remember that you can now subscribe to Slantcast through all the major outlets, including Spotify, Apple, Audible, SoundCloud, and others. Finally, Remember to tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Thanks again, and see you next time.